Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, a lot has actually happened since I recorded my last podcast on Friday. So I want to kind of start with what happened today and then kind of work backwards. So first of all, the big news of the day is the Federal Reserve did exactly what the markets expected and reduced interest rates by a quarter point. This is the second quarter point reduction since the Fed reversed course on monetary policy and started what it once called a mid-course correction. The markets didn't really like that, so the Fed kind of walked that back. Although in the press conference today, uh, Powell was asked about the mid-course correction, and he kind of dodged it a little bit, but still maintained the pretense that all is well in the economy. But anyway, the Fed uh, delivered the quarter point cut number two. It is now targeting the Fed funds rate at between 1.75 and 2%. So we now have short-term interest rates back below 2%, certainly on the way to zero, maybe even lower. We'll see. Although, again, Jerome Powell was specifically asked about negative interest rates uh, during the Q&A session uh, following the uh, the announcement. And he basically said that the Fed is not really thinking about negative interest rates or don't think they're going to be doing negative interest rates. But of course, we'll see what happens when we get to zero and the problems are not solved. Uh, so the Fed may well do uh, negative interest rates. They may not want to let that cat out of the bag just yet. Now, at one point, there was some anticipation that the Fed would actually do 50 basis points. Uh, But by the time we actually got the announcement this morning, uh, I don't think anybody was really looking for 50 basis points. Although uh, in the decision to reduce rates, Bullard, Jim Bullard, actually dissented in that he wanted a 50 basis point rate cut. Uh, rather than the 25, but there were actually two other dissenters who didn't want any cuts at all. Uh, But everybody else, including the chairman, 
wanted 25 basis points. And again, that's what the market expected. And the Federal Reserve rarely does something that the market does not expect because it's too afraid of provoking an adverse reaction, right? If they don't cut enough, the markets could sell off. Or maybe if they cut too much, the markets could be thinking, oh my God, what are they worried about? Why are they panicking? Uh, So the Fed always wants to play it safe and it pretty much does what the markets expect, what the markets want. And that is exactly what we got. In fact, there was very little reaction Uh, The stock market initially sold off. The Dow was down maybe 200 at the most uh, before ending up slightly positive on the day. Gold, which had been up about six or seven bucks before the announcement, sold off. I saw it as low is down maybe about 12 or 13 dollars. Gold managed to recover part, but not all of those losses. It still closed down on the day. I don't know, about seven, eight bucks, something like that. We're back below 1500 around 1493 but really not much of a reaction. Silver had a bigger reaction. I think it was down about 30 cents. The dollar did edge a little bit higher as a result, uh, but not a big move up. Dollar index at 98.60, and the bond market barely reacted. I mean, yields were lower prior to the announcement, and they barely moved. I think they inched up a notch or so after the news. But again, the markets had highly anticipated this particular rate cut. What's really more important is where the Fed goes from here. That's what the markets are concerned about. And of course, what the markets really should be concerned about is not what happened today, but what happened yesterday and also to a lesser extent today. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of fanfare. I think the financial media and Wall Street is really trying to downplay this. But in the federal funds market yesterday, uh, there basically was a shortage of uh, buyers for uh, overnight uh, treasuries in the uh, you know f- Fed funds market, and interest rates, short-term interest rates, spiked up. Maybe they got to four percent or something like that because there wasn't enough lenders around. There was a shortage of liquidity. There was too many people looking to borrow money and not enough lenders willing to supply it. And so then the Fed had to come in. It was an emergency. And I don't know, they put anywhere between 50 and $80 billion uh, of liquidity into the market in order to bring rates back down to around their target level of about 2%. Now, this is a big deal because it shows that the Fed is losing control of the short end of the curve that market forces are beginning to overwhelm the Fed's attempts to artificially suppress interest rates. In fact, I think one of the uh, more interesting uh, moments of the Q&A is when Powell today actually posed the question as, you know, why are interest rates low? Although he was talking about long-term interest rates. Well, it hasn't dawned on, on Powell that the reason interest rates are low is because of the Fed. It's not because of some kind of weird thing going on in the economy. Interest rates are low because central bankers around the world are artificially suppressing them. It makes no sense fundamentally for interest rates to be as low as they are, especially in the United States where we have minimal savings and everybody is loaded up with debt. You have the federal government borrowing record amounts of money. You have states and municipalities borrowing record amounts of money. You have corporations borrowing record amounts of money. You have individuals borrowing record amounts of money, right? It's just all this borrowing 
very little savings going on, interest rates should be much higher. In fact, higher interest rates is what would cause people to save more. It, it's, it would bring down the amount of borrowing, especially uh, speculative type borrowing and borrowing to finance consumption and things like that, so that the more of the borrowing would be to finance capital investment and things that would make the economy more productive. But none of this is happening because of the, the Federal Reserve and other central banks. But what happened uh, yesterday, and then again today to a lesser degree, though, is indication, is a warning sign that this is coming to an end, that market forces are trying to push rates higher despite the fact that the Fed is trying to suppress them. Now, again, I know a lot of people have pointed out to the markets and the fact that, hey, the markets are actually leading the Fed, that the Fed is just responding to the markets because the long end of the curve is going down, you know, and that's not the Fed. The only reason that longer term interest rates are low is because central banks are, in fact, suppressing the short end and traders are betting that central banks will react in a certain way to the next economic recession that central bankers, particularly the Fed, is denying is on the way. Because no matter what the Fed says about how great the economy is, and again, Powell reiterated that he thinks the economy is in great shape and that today's rate cut is just a precaution, right? But, you know, hey, if anything goes wrong, we stand ready to do QE and go back to zero. But we think everything is fine. But just to make sure, we're just going to cut rates anyway. But the markets don't believe that. The markets uh, are seeing the recession that the Fed is denying. And, of course, the Fed, even if the Fed sees it, it thinks its job is to deny it because it wants to engender some false confidence to try to delay the onset of the recession as long as possible. But the markets are seeing this recession and they are bringing rates down in advance to front run the Fed because they know exactly how the Fed is going to react to the next recession. In fact, the Fed is telling you if they are surprised, if their rosy uh, forecast proves wrong, they're slashing rates, they're doing more QE. And the bond traders have been trying to to front run that. But, you know, the bottom line, though, on all this quantitative easing and, and keeping interest rates artificially low is that that is the actual problem, right? The problem in the economy, particularly in the U.S. economy, but in other economies, too, is that interest rates are too low. And the longer the central banks keep them this low, the bigger these problems are going to get. But the problem is everybody still believes that lowering interest rates are the solution rather than the problem. And again, you know, it reminds me of the medieval uh, physicians who would bleed their patients, right? Bloodletting. Okay, the patient is sick. Oh, let's take out some blood, right? Well, maybe taking out the blood makes the patient even sicker, but then the physician has a sicker patient and the, the conclusion is, aha, we didn't take out enough blood. Let's take out some more. Well, and eventually you take enough blood out and you, you kill your patient. And that's really what these guys are doing. These old physicians reincarnated as central bankers. And, you know, what they're doing is the equivalent of bloodletting uh, in their monetary policy where they keep interest rates too low. And then the underlying economy gets weaker because of the low rates. It's higher interest rates that is the cure. But again, like all cures and the reason this one is being resisted, is because there is some short-term pain, right? This medicine doesn't taste very well. And when you swallow it, there's going to be a withdrawal. 
And so since these central bankers are really politicians, and again, you know, Powell went out of his way today to deny that they're being influenced by politics, when that's the only thing that's influencing these guys is politics, right? They are trying to delay the day of reckoning, and they do that by keeping interest rates artificially low, right? Because allowing interest rates to rise would immediately uh, bring about a recession and cause the much-needed reallocation of resources and restructuring of the economy. And that's kind of what was happening yesterday because there's all this debt. Everybody's borrowing all this money. And so naturally, interest rates are going up. And what the Federal Reserve had to do to stop that was happening was conjure up 50, 60, 70, $80 billion out of thin air and then make that money available to buy up these bonds in the, in, the, in the repo market to keep interest rates down. Now, in effect, that was like a return to quantitative easing. I mean, they're not calling it quantitative easing, but what did the Federal Reserve do? They created money and they bought government debt and expanded their balance sheet. That's exactly what they were doing before. In fact, there were a lot of people. In fact, you know, I forget you know which banks in particular, but I was reading uh, several of the banks, I think Morgan Stanley was among them. I forget who else. But there were some uh, bankers that actually expected the Fed to come out today and announce some new version of QE, right? But th- nobody expects them to call it QE. They expect, I think the Morgan Stanley guy, he was calling it POMO, right? Permanent Open Market Operations, POMO, right? And so that he expected the the Fed to announce POMO. And in fact, uh, Powell did say today that it would be possible that the Fed would have to resume uh, its balance sheet growth or balance sheet expansion awards to that effect. So basically, that is an official coming from Powell admission that QE4 is coming, right? And it's coming soon, but they're just not going to call it quantitative easing. Maybe they will call it permanent open market operations, but that's basically what it is. I mean, think about where the, you know, the name QE came from in the first place. Where'd they come up with that? Because what the Fed really was doing after the 2008 financial crisis, when, you know, budget deficits skyrocketed based on TARP and all the other government bailouts, in order to keep interest rates from rising, right, and keep and reflate the stock market bubble and the real estate bubble, the Federal Reserve had to monetize all this debt. The Federal Reserve had to go into the markets and buy up all those bonds that the government was selling. Otherwise, interest rates would have risen in the private sector. And so they came up with a plan and they were buying all this government debt and monetizing it, except they didn't want to say that their plan was debt monetization because people naturally are skeptical of central banks monetizing government debt. That's a no-no, right? That's what the banana republics do in South America. And in fact, it is actually illegal for the Federal Reserve to buy treasuries directly from the U.S. government. Why is that? Because they don't want the debt to be monetized. Now, of course, they do an end run around that because what the Fed does is that it doesn't buy um, bonds directly from the Treasury. It buys them from the secondary market. But it's basically a distinction without a difference because once the Federal Reserve buys bonds from private owners, well, now that those private owners have more cash, and so now they can take that cash and buy more bonds uh, from the treasury. So they're still monetizing the debt, even if they're doing it indirectly. And of course, what this ends up doing is it profits a lot of these big banks, because what happens is banks like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, they go and they buy the bonds 
from the Treasury, and then they turn around and sell them to the Fed. And they make a commission in the process. So now we have a middleman. So we still have debt monetization going on, except now it costs the taxpayers even more money because we have to enrich the middleman. You know, the the Federal Reserve should not be buying treasuries at all. And in fact, I've mentioned that on this podcast, but I'll mention it again in case you don't remember. But when the Federal Reserve Act was originally passed, they were not allowed. The Federal Reserve was not allowed to have any U.S. government debt on its balance sheet at all. It was forbidden. And in fact, if it wasn't for forbidding the Fed from owning U.S. Treasuries, they probably would not have even been able to pass the Federal Reserve Act because Americans at that time would have been very skeptical of a Federal Reserve that was empowered to loan money to the United States government. So it was forbidden. Now, the reason it changed was World War One. As soon as we got World War One, remember, I mentioned on a previous podcast, we lost every war and we basically lost World War One. Uh, even though we technically won the war, we lost freedom. You know, we actually got the estate tax and the gift tax to, to help fight World War One. That was, what, 100 years ago. And we still have the estate tax and we still have the gift tax. You know, the income withholding tax. That was a victory tax. I came in in 1942 uh, to help us win the Second World War. Well, I thought we won that war in 1945. Why are we still paying the victory tax in 2019? In fact, all the new taxes that came in to fight World War II, they're still here. The war is over, but the taxes remain. That's why we lost that war. But getting back to what happened in World War I, so the government wanted to finance the war. And, you know, we never should have even been in this war. It's a huge mistake to get into World War I, but I don't want to get into that in this podcast. But the government didn't want to pay for the war with taxes. It wanted to borrow the money. And so the easiest way to borrow the money was from the Federal Reserve. It had just been created a few years earlier. So it didn't take the government long to raid that piggy bank, but they had to amend the Federal Reserve Act. And so they amended the Federal Reserve Act during a war Right. To enable the Federal Reserve to buy on the secondary market, not directly, but buy on the secondary market, U.S. government bonds. So it now could hold U.S. government bonds on its balance sheet. But also, and this is another piece of trivia that I mentioned before, but I'll mention it again. When Congress did that, when Congress authorized the Federal Reserve to own U.S. Treasuries, they were worried correctly that this might enable more government debt. So at the same time they did that, they enacted the debt ceiling. That's where the debt ceiling came from. It came from World War I when Congress gave the Federal Reserve the authority to hold U.S. Treasuries. They then imposed a limit on the national debt because they didn't want the the U.S. government to take advantage of the Fed being able to buy its bonds and, and go too deep into debt. So they passed the debt ceiling. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. See, the problem is the debt ceiling wasn't like a permanent ceiling. They passed the ceiling that could be raised. And of course, they've raised it many, many times since then. And now we have $22 trillion in debt. But that's the backstory on how all this happened. 
So getting back to my original point before I, I digressed as many times as I did. So the Federal Reserve needed to monetize all this debt, but it didn't want to admit that, right? There's a stigma associated with that, right? We're monetizing the debt. And, and in fact, Ben Bernanke, when he was questioned before Republicans in Congress, I think it was 2009 or 2010, he was specifically accused in a hearing of monetizing the debt. A Republican said, you're monetizing the debt. And Ben Bernanke replied to that congressman by saying, no, 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 we're not monetizing the debt. Monetizing the debt is when a central bank becomes a permanent source of financing for a government. Ben Bernanke said, this is an emergency. We are only temporarily buying these bonds. And when the emergency is over, we are going to sell them. So we're not actually monetizing debt, right? Well, at the time he said that, I called BS. I said Bernanke was lying. The Fed was never going to sell those bonds. They were monetizing the debt. And of course, now it turns out I was right and he was wrong or he was lying because all those bonds are still on the Fed's balance sheet. And in fact, you know, they, they tried to shrink the balance sheet, but now they're about to run it up to an even higher level than where they shrank it from because by Ben Bernanke's own definition, the Federal Reserve is becoming a permanent source of financing to the U.S. government. So we are monetizing the debt. But originally, they didn't want to call it monetizing the debt, so they just decided to call it quantitative easing, right? Because that doesn't sound bad, right? That sounds good. Quantitative, That's you know that sounds uh, sophisticated and intelligent, and hey, easy sounds good, right? Easy is better than hard. So, oh, we're not monetizing debt. We're just doing quantitative easing, right? That was just a euphemism for monetizing debt, which really is inflation which is what debt monetization is. You're inflating the money supply. You're creating inflation and you're turning debt into money, right? And that's a bad thing. And that could turn into hyperinflation eventually, and it may in the United States. But so they call it quantitative easing. But here's the problem that the Fed has now. The Fed doesn't want to call it quantitative easing anymore because quantitative easing now has a bad connotation too. Because if the Fed is going to relaunch quantitative easing, People are going to think, why? I mean, the last time you did quantitative easing, we were having a financial crisis. We were in the Great Recession. You want to do quantitative easing again? Right? I mean, that that might spook the markets. People might think that there's a problem, and that's why the Fed is doing quantitative easing. So now they have to come up with a brand new name, right? So now, because they didn't want to call debt monetization a debt monetization the first time, you know, they call the quantitative easing. Now they want to come up with a brand new name for debt monetization. And maybe that's going to be permanent open market operations where the Federal Reserve basically says, hey, permanently, here's how much government debt we're going to buy every month or whatever it is. But basically, it doesn't matter. Debt monetization, quantitative easing, by any other name, it still stinks. And whatever the Fed's going to do, it's going to stink to high heaven. But, you know, getting back to this failure uh, from yesterday where the Fed has to come in, again, this is an indication that there is too much debt and that really interest rates have to rise. They need to go up in order to facilitate or attract enough uh, lenders uh, to satisfy that demand. And the Fed is now trapped. And I think that this is just the beginning, right? This is the the the, uh, the the tip of an iceberg and that the Fed is going to quickly have to come up with permanent open market operations, whatever they want to call it, 
to try to prevent interest rates from rising. But again, that is the wrong thing to do. Interest rates need to rise. That's part of the cure. That's part of the solution. But when they do, we prick the bubble, right? And everything comes imploding down, right? This whole phony economy that was built on artificially low interest rates implodes. And it's not a question of if it will happen. It's only a question of when, because it is an artificial economy. The market rate of interest is artificially being suppressed, and there is a limit to how long the Fed can continue to keep interest rates artificially low. And that goes for other central banks around the world. And the longer they succeed in keeping them low, the bigger the ultimate failure is going to be when it comes to everything collapsing down. In fact, you know, one example of this is what's going on with a lot of these stocks, these money-losing companies. I've been talking about WeWork, right, uh, and that I think WeWork is ultimately doesn't and that it's going to go bankrupt. Now, it's possible that WeWork's creditors may be able to scale down the company and find a way to operate it profitably, uh, but right now the company is losing a ton of money and it's overly leveraged. It has all sorts of debt. And one of the reasons that they were able to accumulate all this debt is because interest rates were so low. And in the speculative fever that the Federal Reserve created, investors didn't care about how much money companies were losing and they were investing in them anyway because they just thought they would make money finding a greater fool to pay an even higher price well the supply of greater fools is running short and it was announced earlier this week uh, that not only you know they delayed the IPO on WeWork I, I mentioned on the last podcast that it looked like they were reducing the valuation from like 40 something billion which was where they funded the last round down to like 10 to 15 billion but I guess investors were even balking at that number so so they had to postpone the whole thing. Who knows if they're ever going to get this IPO done. But, you know, if they don't do the IPO, WeWork is going to go bankrupt because without the money from the IPO, they can't pay off their, their debts. But even if they do go public, they're still going to go bankrupt. They're just delaying the execution because now they have a little bit more money uh, to keep this, you know, basic Ponzi scheme going. But look, you know, this is happening. Look at some of these other stocks. That stock Chewy uh, came out with earnings or rather losses today. And uh, the price was down a new low since it's been public. Stocks trading down around 28 bucks. But, you know, it's still ahead because if you got it on the IPO, uh, it, the IPO was at 22, but I'm pretty sure it gapped up and anyone who bought it in the public market paid a much higher price. In fact, the shares traded as high as $41 in change. And I think that was on the very opening day. I mean, maybe that was the opening print. I forget. But, you know, now the stock is traded down from a high of 41 and change. Now we're down to 28. And I don't think it's going to stay above its $22 IPO price much longer. You know, this is kind of literally Pets.com redone. I mean, maybe it's a better uh, company with a better uh, model than, than Pets.com, but it's still it's losing money. And, you know, investors are losing their appetite for money losing stocks. And soon they're going to be losing their appetite for money losing bonds, right? And those are negative yielding bonds, right? Because negative yielding bonds, by definition, are money losing. And that's even more irrational, right? Buying a negative yielding bond is even crazier than buying a money losing company. Because at least if you're buying a company that's losing money, there is the prospect that the company may not be losing money forever, 
I mean, after all, if you expected it to lose money forever, then there'd be no reason to buy it, right? The whole idea of you know buying a company that's losing money is you look at those losses as some kind of investment in future profits, right? They're building a brand, they're building market share, and they're spending a lot of money now, but later on, those investments are going to bear fruit and the company will ultimately generate profits out of which dividends can be paid. And so investors are speculating on the fact that the losses will go away and they'll be replaced by profits, right? But if you if you thought there was no hope of making a profit, then obviously there'd be no point in buying the stock. But that's exactly what investors are doing if they buy a negative yielding bond. It is impossible by definition to make money on a negative yielding bond. You can only lose, right? So why would somebody buy a bond knowing that they're going to lose? Now, of course, somebody might think, well, I'm going to buy the bond, but I'm not going to hold it to maturity because if I do that, I'm going to lose for sure. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell it before it matures at a profit. Well, that's only possible if the guy who buys it from you is willing to lose a bunch of money because now he has to hold it to maturity. And if you're selling at a profit, then he's going to have to lose even more by holding the bond to maturity than you are going to lose. So why would that person come and buy a bond at a higher price than you paid, knowing that if he holds it to maturity, he's going to lose money? Only because he thinks he can unload the same bond to another fool at an even higher price who's willing to hold it to maturity and lose even more money. But again, nobody is willing to hold it to maturity. Everybody thinks they're going to get out before the music stops because everybody thinks they're going to find a greater fool. But the problem is eventually you can't find a greater fool and the greatest fool is holding the bag because by definition, all of the people who own a negative yielding bond collectively have to lose money. Because the issuer of a negative yielding bond makes money. Because when you sell a negative yielding bond, right, you are repaying less than you borrowed. By definition, that's the negative yield. So that means the borrowers are getting back less than they loaned. And so all the people who trade these things, when you total them up, some people may make money and other people will lose money. But overall, they have to lose money because that's the only way it works. So this whole thing has to implode, right? The the money losing bonds are even more insane than the money losing stocks. But to me, it looks like we're seeing the beginnings of the fact that investors are losing their appetite for all of this and that the current fools may realize that they are the greatest fool and that they've got no way out. Now, while I'm on the subject of this, too, I've, I've been reading a lot about the idea that we should take advantage of these really, really low interest rates, right? We should The U.S. government should issue 100-year bonds to take advantage of how low the interest rates are. Now, of course, nobody would be dumb enough, I would imagine, to buy these 100-year bonds, although maybe somebody would because they, you know, obviously nobody is buying a 100-year bond with the expectation of holding it to maturity because there's no one who's alive today who can actually buy a 100-year bond who would still be here in 100 years to collect, right? So anybody who's buying a 100-year bond is speculating, right? They think, oh, this is this is going to be a great bet. I might make money uh, selling it to a greater fool. But the point that I want to make on these 100-year bonds is I think the whole concept is immoral, right? Because if the government is going to borrow money to spend it on the current uh, you know, group of taxpayers, it's the current group of taxpayers who should be responsible for repaying the debt, right? I mean, they're supposedly benefiting from the expenditures. 
they should have to pick up the tab. I mean, we should not be spending money today and expecting people to repay it 100 years from now. I mean, nobody who would benefit from money being spent today by the government who is a taxpayer today is going to be alive in 100 years. I mean, none of those people have even been born yet. I mean, think about that. We are trying to indenture people who won't even be born for another 60, 70, 80 years, and we expect them to pick up the tab for the money that we spent? I mean, talk about immoral. Talk about intergenerational theft. I mean, think about it this way. What if 100 years ago, right, in you know 1919, Right. Americans issued 100 year bonds to pay for some kind of, you know, stimulus program, some kind of tax cuts or government spending, whatever. Right. And they borrowed a bunch of money. And now the bonds were due today. Would anybody want to repay that? Don't you think there'd be a groundswell of people saying, screw that. Let's default on those bonds. The people who made these promises were dead before my grandparents were born. I don't want to honor those commitments. Right. And the people who loan the money, they're dead, too. Right. You'd be it'd be the great, great grandchildren of the borrowers repaying the great, great grandchildren of the lenders. I mean, it wouldn't happen. So the idea that Americans 100 years from now, right, who haven't even been born yet, somehow are going to repay the debts that we, you know, we incur today. No way. It's not going to happen. Plus, of course, the value of the dollar is just going to get destroyed between now and then. What the U.S. government should do, the responsible thing to do, is to cut government spending. That's what we should be doing. We should be reducing the size of government, not saying, hey, let's take advantage of all this cheap money by borrowing even more. Again, I've said this many times, but that's like, you know, if they were giving away free heroin, would you use it just because it was free? Right. Just because something is inexpensive doesn't mean you should do it. If it's the wrong thing to do, then don't do it. Of course, you know, one of the biggest news stories since my last podcast was the bombing of the uh, oil facilities in Saudi Arabia, supposedly, uh, you know, by the Iranians. Uh, but that was, you know, a, a massive disruption of a significant percentage of uh, global oil output. And initially, I think on that Sunday night, Oil prices surged by about $10 a barrel, uh, maybe about 14 or 15 percent. Uh, they've pulled back quite a bit since then. They're only a few dollars higher. And certainly, if, if an incident like that happened 20 years ago, the percentage increase in the price of oil would have been substantially higher than it was today. So certainly, there's a lot of production going on now outside of Saudi Arabia, particularly here in the United States. You know, We certainly produce a lot more oil uh, now than we did back then. And so the world is not on the margin, is susceptible uh, to a price shock from oil uh, based on that event. But I, I personally believe that the, the price of oil is going to head higher for all sorts of reasons, particularly once the U.S. dollar starts to fall. But the geopolitical tensions and the prospect of war or military action in the Middle East is rising, and that is going to put a risk premium into the price of oil, which would be rising anyway. And, you know, I was joking. As soon as, uh, you know, we got this uh, story and oil prices, you know, were obviously going to rise, you know, my initial reaction, and I tweeted this out, uh, was that, oh, this is a relief. This is great. The central bankers should be loving this because it means oil prices are going to go up, and they all want more inflation, right? 
right? They keep complaining that the, the cost of living is not going up enough, that, you know, prices are not rising fast enough. So this should be, you know, very helpful as far as central bankers are concerned because, oh, oil prices going up. That's going to help, right? In fact, you know, they got some news, I think, out of the U.K. today. And the inflation number, I forget what it was, but it was less than the forecast. And the way CNBC was reporting it, they said that the inflation numbers disappointed, right? Disappointed, right? If inflation is too low, that is a disappointment. I mean, I remember when high inflation was a disappointment. Well, eventually it's going to be a disappointment again. But this is, you know, the Wall Street and the government trying to rewrite uh, language, right? Uh, uh, doublespeak. And trying to say that it's it's a disappointment, right? Oh, my cost of living didn't go up as much as I was expecting. Oh, how disappointing is that, right? Well, if that's your mindset, then maybe, you know, the Saudis, you know, they should have blown up their own oil facilities to, to do the world a favor. Made like it would be monetary policy, right? It's a lot easier than uh, uh, Paul Krugman's idea of faking an alien invasion. Hey, let's just blow up some oil facilities and then we can have more expensive oil and then it'll be great because then the cost of living will be going up. But of course, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, when oil prices go up, they'll say, oh, well, that doesn't count because we only care about the core. Meanwhile, core CPI in the U.S. is now rising at the fastest pace in 11 years. As of uh, the last report, I think it's 2.4 percent, uh, even the way the government uh, doctors it up. But of course, if oil prices keep rising, and I do think they will, you know, that works its way into the cost of everything because of transportation and manufacturing. I mean, oil uh, energy is an important part of uh, a lot of the economy, not just your direct consumption of energy, but it you know goes into the production of all sorts of things. And so, yes, it is going to bleed its way into the core. But, you know, while I'm talking about uh, prices going up, I got uh, my renewal, I think last week, for my health insurance. And I still get my health insurance uh, from your Pacific capital, which I'm now changing. I've been, you know, I don't know. I don't know why I haven't changed it, but I'm switching over to a plan, uh, from my Puerto Rican company, uh, uh, Pacific asset management in part because it's a lot cheaper. Right. But so, and I should have done this a couple of years ago. And it's just one of those things that I just really wasn't high on my priority list, but then getting this, uh, there's renewal notice kind of, you know, moved it up, uh, up the, up, uh, you know, up the pyramid of importance. But anyway, I got the renewal and of course, every year the insurance premium goes up. I mean, you know, it's just kind of like clockwork and it always goes up by much more than the official rate of inflation, you know, by far, but this hike, this year's hike, was particularly sharp, 30%, 30% increase in the price of my health insurance in one year. Now, you know, I tweeted about this too, and there were some people saying, well, you know, Peter, you're getting older, so insurance is getting more expensive. Hey, I'm only 56. How much more expensive could it be from when I was 55? I mean, I'm not 30% riskier. In fact, I haven't even put in any claims. Uh, over the year. But again, my policy covers a family of five. Three of them are kids. And, and I, two of them are really young. One's three and one's six. I mean, what's going to happen to them? And then I have a 17-year-old. I mean, he's healthy. He doesn't, nothing's wrong with him. So even if, because I'm 56, I'm getting a little bit more expensive. I'm only 20% of the family. Yet the, the health insurance went up 30% for everybody, for the entire fire group. And it's an expensive insurance. I mean, and it's not like, I mean, I still have deductibles. I still have co-pays and stuff like that. Uh, but this is ridiculous. 30% in one year. You know, I can only imagine 
how much higher, how much bigger, rather, these annual price hikes are going to be when the Fed finally admits that it's achieved its 2% inflation objective. I mean, if they're not even at their 2% objective and my health insurance is going up 30%, by the time they're at 2%, what, is it going to go up 50% a year, 60% a year? Now, of course, there's a lot more than inflation at work, right, that's driving up health care costs. It's government regulation that is driving up health insurance costs, in particular, Obamacare, right? I remember, if you haven't seen the uh, interview I did on CNN, uh, Fareed Zakaria, that was the last time I was on CNN. It's probably like five, six years ago. They haven't had me on since. Maybe because I beat the hell out of all the liberal guests. They probably couldn't find any more liberals who would go on with me. But I think the title of it is, uh, you know, Peter Schiff versus three or four liberals or something like that. It's got a couple of hundred thousand views on my YouTube channel. But go back then, because they were all talking about Obamacare and how it was going to bring down health care costs, how it was going to bring down health insurance costs. And I said, you're wrong. It's going to make insurance costs go up even more. Health care is going to be even more expensive. Insurance is going to be more expensive as a result of Obamacare. All these guys thought costs would go down. Of course, I was the only one that was right, because costs are going up faster now with Obamacare than they were before Obamacare. And one of the main reasons for that is because we now have a perverse incentive. No healthy people want to buy insurance. It's a complete waste of money. And I agree, just wait till you get sick. That was the moral hazard that Obama started and that Trump made worse because Obama had some small penalties in there. If you didn't buy insurance, you had to pay a penalty. But of course, paying the penalty was still a better deal than buying the insurance, right? And then Trump, because he didn't have the guts to get rid of Obamacare, took the easy way out and he got rid of uh, the penalties for not buying insurance. So now it's even a bigger moral hazard. So the only people that buy insurance are the people who are sick enough to need it right now. So the insurance companies are hemorrhaging money. And the only way they can stay afloat is they have to keep on raising the premiums so they can keep paying out uh, the benefits. So this is a time bomb that is going to explode. You know, by the way, you know, just to digress again, but. Donald Trump, what he tweeted out today after the, the Fed, you know, only cut by a quarter point, basically Trump said that you guys are a bunch of cowards. You don't have the guts uh, to do the right thing, you know, making a bigger rate cut or doing more quantitative easing. Look, first of all, if the Fed had done exactly what Trump wants them to do, right, if they hadn't failed, if they had succeeded, they would have succeeded in doing exactly what Trump criticized uh, Janet Yellen for doing and the exact reason he didn't reappoint her, right? He criticized Janet Yellen for quantitative easing, for keeping interest rates artificially low, and he didn't reappoint her because he wanted somebody to do something different. Then poor Jerome Powell tries to do something different and the president is all over him because he's not doing exactly what Janet Yellen was doing, but it is not courageous to just cut interest rates and print money. That is the coward's way out. And that's what Trump wants, the coward's way out. Because Trump is acting like a coward because if Trump had any guts, what he would do is cut government spending. He would actually do what's necessary. He would drain the swamp. Draining the swamp takes guts. See, talking about draining the swamp doesn't take any guts at all because talk is cheap. It's actions that count. And when it comes to actions, Trump's a coward because he won't do anything. 
And now he accuses the Fed of cowardice behavior when he's the one that is acting like a coward. Now, also, too, uh, another sign that the U.S. economy is weakening, despite some of the other uh, data that might that may suggest that things are improving a bit. But look at the earnings that came out of Federal Express. They reported after the bell uh, last night. Uh, worse than expected numbers. FedEx down almost 13% today in one day. One of the biggest one-day declines, I think, in the history of Federal Express. Federal Express, of course, blaming their uh, um, miss on the trade war. And, you know, part of it may, in fact, be the result of the trade war. But a lot of it probably has to do with the slowing economy. That's going to continue to slow. Look at GM workers now on strike. You know, this seems like uh, uh, it would be happening in an environment where I'm talking about stagflation. Right. You have GM workers on strike. They want more wages than General Motors is prepared to pay. Probably one of the reasons that they need higher wages is because their cost of living is going up. Cost of health care is going up. Uh, so now we're back to strikes. We haven't had a GM strike in I don't know how many years, over a decade or so. So strikes, demands for higher wages, prices going up. I mean, the Fed is about to relaunch quantitative easing, whatever they're going to call it. That's what they're going to do. Uh, all of the stagflation dominoes seem to be uh, falling into place. Hey, I did want to uh, update everybody on my IRS battle because I actually had a minor victory here. If you don't know the battle that I'm having with the Internal Revenue Service, I got penalized $1.6 million for filing two forms late. Uh, the penalty for one of the forms being filed late was 200000 and the penalty for the other form being filed late was $1.4 million. Now, I'm not making this up. This is true. Uh, no taxes were due. Uh, it was simply a form, an informational form that was required. And again, all of this was part of the anti-money laundering acts uh, that had their roots in the Patriot Act. So all this is because of the war on terror, which, of course, we lost, right, because we lost all of these rights and liberties. I explained that last time. Well, one of the liberties that we lost was our, our Eighth Amendment protection against unreasonable penalties, because apparently that went out the window because... No penalty is unreasonable as far as the IRS is concerned when it comes to uh, money laundering, right? So a, a $1.4 million penalty for filing one little form uh, late, not failing to file it, just getting it in late, $1.4 million. Anyway, the $200,000 penalty, I had that abated. The IRS agreed to waive it because it turns out that that form wasn't actually late because my tax attorney uh, who lives in Florida the year that particular form was due, there was a hurricane. And so there was a natural disaster, and that created an extension. Even though I did not live in the disaster zone, my accountant, who was handling the filing, uh, lived in Florida. And of course, the reason I even have this account, I used to have an account in California, but the rules became so complex for you know uh, taxpayers that had offshore holdings uh, that my California accountants didn't even have the expertise to file the returns. Now, these are CPAs, right? There's an old expression when it comes to uh, law. My, my father used to talk about all this, this all the time, uh, a principle of void for vagueness, right? That if a law is vague, if it's not easy to understand, it's void, right? Well, the tax code, at a minimum, has to be void for vagueness. I mean, forget about all the other reasons that it, it's illegal and it violates the Constitution. Who the hell can understand the tax code? Even my own CPAs. Right. Enrolled agents, CPAs, professionals don't understand the tax code enough to do my tax return. 
Well, how am I, a layperson who's not an accountant, if professional accountants don't understand the tax code, how am I supposed to do it? I have to hire specialists who can understand what most accountants don't. Right. So that's so ridiculous. And of course, I have to pay these accountants a lot more money for their expertise in being able to file a tax return that an ordinary accountant doesn't know enough about the tax code to even file. Right. So how am I expected to even know that? Right. But anyway, so these accounts, since he was in the disaster area, uh, he got an extension. So it turns out I didn't actually file late. I filed within the extended period of time. Now, they fined me the $200,000 anyway, but when we pointed out you know, the, the actual due date, they said, okay, you don't have to pay the fine. But of course, the crazy part about it is, why should the penalty be $200,000 anyway? Even if I hadn't had the extension for the natural disaster, it, what's a disaster is that the government can get away with a $200,000 fine. What's an even bigger disaster is that they're trying to get away with a $1.4 million fine, which is the fine I'm facing on the, the other form that I filed late. Now, that one I actually did file late. So now I got to wait and see. Hopefully, they're going to abate that one under like the one-time exemption, like, hey, it's my first time. It was an inadvertent mistake. But the crazy part about it is, both of the forms had the exact same information. So all the information that I would have given the government on the form that I have a $1.4 million penalty, it's exactly the same information that was on the one that I filed timely where they were going to give me the $200,000 information. So the second form did not have any additional information. It was the exact same property because there was only one piece of property because I had just formed the trust. And I only put one piece of property into the trust at that time. So they had all the information by the time they got the second form. It just you know, reiterated the information they already had. So the whole thing is ridiculous. But I'll let you know. Hopefully, uh, they waived the $1.4 million uh, penalty uh, on that one. And then they're not going to force me to try to take this thing all the way up to the Supreme Court, <laughs> which is what I was saying I, in a way, wanted to do. But of course, I don't want to get distracted uh, with litigation against the U.S. government. But to me, I still can't see how any court can somehow say that a $1.4 million penalty for filing a form late is not an unreasonable penalty barred uh, by the Constitution. <laughs>